You're listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, you can find us at faithchurchindy.com. Now here's the teaching. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Pastor Joey, and I am uh, terrified of emotions, specifically my own emotions. A few years back, my coach recommended that I pick up a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's a great book. I know I've talked about it uh, from up here before. The guy's basic premise is that you cannot be any more spiritually mature than you are emotionally mature. I felt that need. Now, my first uh, recollection of interacting with this book is I was just flipping through it, and, and randomly I stopped on a page where there was a graph or a table or something like that, and it, it, it listed five or six, I forget how many, uh, sort of core emotions, and then all of the sub-emotions that kind of branch off of those core emotions, and I was blown away. I had no idea. I had no idea that there were so many emotions and sub-emotions and sub-sub-emotions. I was like, are you saying there's words for those weird feelings that I've been dealing with and suppressing my whole life? Like, I thought it was just indigestion, but it turns out there are other words for it. I, I mean, as far as I knew up to that point in my life, there were really only five major emotions. I thought you could be mad, uh, sad, bad, glad, or hungry. Uh, right? And that, that was basically it. And glad I liked, hungry I didn't mind, I could take care of that, but mad, bad, sad, those emotions were the ones that we were supposed to avoid. Uh, in fact, it was almost like we had to avoid them. They felt wrong to experience, not, not very fun. And I don't know if that's just because of the family I grew up in or where I grew up in Iowa and the culture there, or if it's because in church I learned to sing songs like Every Day with Jesus is Sweeter Than the Day Before. And now I am happy, happy, happy all the day. Some of you guys remember that one. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't take very long singing those sort of things where you start to realize, like, I'm not sure that I'm allowed to be mad because being mad is like telling God, hey, I'm not okay with what you've decided to do in my life. And you can't do that. I'm not sure that I'm supposed to be sad because following Jesus is supposed to make me happy. Follow Jesus, be happy. That's how it works. And Christians are definitely not supposed to feel bad because if we're feeling bad, it means our problems aren't being solved by Jesus. And how are we going to convince other people to follow Jesus if he's not even taking care of my problems? It was easy to kind of think and operate that way. I don't think necessarily because... I, I wanted those things to be true or thought those things were true. I think they were just convenient excuses to never have to feel negative emotions. God told me to suppress them. I'm being holy. But it's not because I actually think that negative, negative emotions are wrong to feel. It's just that I'm terrified of them. I'm terrified that if I let myself hurt or cry or mourn, I don't know if it will stop. I've never gone through it and gotten to the other side, so I'm terrified, just don't even start. Now, I'm guessing you can tell by the tone of the music and the prayer and the scripture reading this morning that we are starting out a study on a pretty heavy section of scripture. Uh, so if this is your first Sunday with us, welcome. So glad you're here. 
I really hope that somebody invited you along because they said, hey, our church is gonna start this series about grief and mourning and lament, and it's gonna be awesome. So you should come. And I say that only half jokingly because I do hope that as a congregation, we are you know, looking forward to this study through Lamentations. I know a number of you have already picked up Lamentations journal, so you can take notes in there. And, and some of you I talked to are already, like you've read through it a couple of times. You're praying through Lamentations. You're trying to get ready uh, for this. Hopefully you're not looking forward to it just because you know, you're like, I don't know, a masochist who loves to flagellate yourself with negative emotional experiences or something like that. We're looking forward to it because, well, I think we recognize that for most of us, the, the busyness of our lives and the distractedness of our days is, at root, it's probably a coping mechanism to not have to face up to the negative emotions and experiences that are swirling around inside us. Inside is scary, but social media is great. I'll just keep swiping and stay happy, then I won't have to grieve. I won't have to lament. Even though we know that suppressing these negative emotions just means that they leak out of us in ways that hurt the people around us. I mean, we know that unresolved grief, it always turns into something worse, depression or passive-aggressive anger or aggressive-aggressive anger. That's an option too. And that's why we're coming back to the book of Lamentations. We actually tried to preach through this four years ago. Uh, we got a few weeks in, COVID shut us down. I don't think those two things are related, but if we shut down again three weeks into Lamentations, then you'll know. I really hope that doesn't come back to bite me, that particular joke, right? <laughs> well, we're coming back to Lamentations because, I, I, you know, there are probably in a congregation this size, at least three different types of people uh, when it comes to our approaches to sadness, sorrow, mourning, lament, things like that. Some of you are pretty emotionally mature. You're more than capable of allowing yourself to feel your negative emotions and process them in the light of God's gracious faithfulness. Others of us, like myself, we know we should confront the hurts and the sorrow that we carry inside, but if you already feel like you're treading water in a stormy sea and someone's telling you to stop treading water, you're like, yeah, but then I'm going to drown. Afraid to stop trying, I'll end up losing control. But there's a third group of us. I know there's some of us here that, that believe that feeling or showing or expressing negative emotions is somehow wrong. Maybe we think you know, showing grief is the same as doubting God, that's just not okay. Or maybe you grew up in a family or a culture that told you to walk it off, rub some dirt in it. Boys don't cry, you'll be fine, stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on, you know, and all of those. Maybe there might even be a fourth group here, uh, a few folks who are convinced that if God were really real, if he really cared for us, life would not be this hard. There's no way a loving God would allow me to go through what I've suffered. Well, whichever group you find yourself in, I mean, our prayer as the teaching pastors, our prayer during these weeks of Lent, it, you know, this season in which we anticipate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter morning, our prayer is that in these weeks you find permission to grieve, resources to lament, 
and time to feel. Because that's what Lamentations as a book is designed to give us. Lamentations gives us time and space and permission to grieve. So let's get started. And the whole thing begins with a shriek. First word of verse one, it's a cry. Literally, it's something like, ah, in Hebrew. It's not a frightened cry. It's the kind of cry that comes from the deepest grief imaginable. It is an inarticulated groan of sorrow that we translate something like, how? Or how terrible it is that. And so chapter one and actually chapter two both start the same way. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. It's a cry that's being given voice by a worship leader, a pastoral mentor type of person leading this annual worship service on the anniversary of the fall of Jerusalem, leading the congregation that has survived in the land, leading them into and through a yearly grief process to come to terms with what has happened. Initially, he acts kind of like a reporter, um, sort of giving giving words to, reminding people of what they've gone through. But unlike a reporter who flies in, covers a story, and then flies back home again at the end of the day, this reporter is deeply embedded in the story. He's a sufferer himself. He's only a few steps ahead of the congregation in dealing with his own grief. It's like he's, he's reading Jerusalem's obituary. But because he knew her personally, he too is deeply affected by the tragedy. He's only holding it together emotionally because of his role up on stage as the mentor, the leader, the pastor. And so he rehearses again for them in this annual ritual. He rehearses again there the grief and the losses as the community simply listens And they recognize the form his words are taking. There's parts of Hebrew poetry that are tough to translate into English and make it really work without sounding really weird in English. And and part of it is the fact that in Hebrew, the the rhythm of the words are just sort of limping along. It's like you can't ever quite catch the rhythm of what the guy's saying. It's the form that's used for a funeral dirge. And what's unique about a dirge, besides that sort of halting rhythm sense, is that it never references God at all. A funeral dirge is just one step further down the grief process from the inarticulate cry of despair, not yet ready to try to figure out, okay, here's what I've experienced, here's how maybe it relates to what God is doing in the world. It's like, we're not there yet. Can I just hurt for a few minutes first? That's what a funeral dirge does because Lamentations gives us time and space and permission to grieve, even gives us permission to grieve without having to figure out how God fits into the picture yet. It's okay to take that time. So he starts, how lonely, how terrible it is that the city that was once full of people now sits lonely. He goes on, she's left like a widow 
which means struggling for survival in the midst of economic poverty. No one left to provide or care for her. He says, the city herself is weeping, mourning, crying bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Even personifies the roads and the gates themselves are in mourning. Literally and emotionally devastated. Desolate. And he goes on for a few verses in this way, but in verse 5, he begins to start to lift up out of the dirge and into lament, starting to bring reference to how is God working in all of this. And in verse 5, he begins to contemplate how this tragedy could possibly align with a loving God's plan. Because the the destruction of Jerusalem, it's a result of political forces vying for power and influence. But on a spiritual level, this tragedy could be interpreted as punishment for the nation's own lack of faithfulness to the God who had chosen them to be his people. Look at verse 5. Her foes have become the head. That's a reversal of what was promised to the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy 28. And now her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. And down in verse 8, the thread continues. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. Verse 9, she took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. And she has no comforter. Now, there is absolutely a human cause to her destruction, the pride and the lust for power of the nation of Babylon. Uh, But the pastor, mentor, worship leader is beginning to sow the seeds for a sermon he'll preach a little bit later, a few poems down. But right now, he's echoing words from Deuteronomy 28. That's that great chapter in which God tells Israel, I have chosen you. You will be my people. And because I have graciously chosen you, you need to respond in faithfulness to me. The worship leader is echoing some of those words to introduce an idea into their consideration. Maybe there's more to the story than just what they can see on a human level. Is it possible that what happened is God's punishment for something they'd done. Now, I want to be really careful here for a bit because I am not saying that every tragedy we experience is a result of God punishing us for something we've done. He did not give you cancer or end your marriage or make you struggle or take away your fortune or take someone you loved because you did something wrong. Because we are not Israel. We are not living as God's chosen nation, responsible to keep ourselves pure so that through us, the Messiah can come and rescue not just us, but the whole world. We are Christians. We are living under grace because the Messiah has already come. And because that Messiah who has come has already taken all of God's judgment and his righteous anger at sin on himself, on the cross. For those who are followers of Jesus, there is no equivalent type of literature in the New Testament 
There we read that God disciplines his sons and his daughters like any good parent, but God does not destroy his children because of their sin or exile them because of their unfaithfulness. Because all of that sin and all of that unfaithfulness has already been paid for by Jesus on the cross. We are not in the same place as Jeremiah and those suffering and expressing it through these words in Lamentations. In the great big story of the Bible, this is before Jesus. This is when the nation of Israel lived with an obligation to hold up their end of the covenant, their life agreement with God. So we have to keep that in mind even as we read through Lamentations and we follow these threads of both grief and also guilt that it's not always appropriate to feel guilt when we're grieving. Sometimes there is a little bit of guilt when it's our own choices that took us to where we are. But this is unique to them being punished by God for not living up to fulfilling the covenant. And so the worship leader appeals to Scripture as a way to bring that sense of meaning to the mental chaos that their grief has brought, even if it means that they have to wrestle with the possibility that they may need to take responsibility for deciding to turn away from God's grace. That's why in the end of verse 9, end of verse 11, there are lines that are set off in quotations. The pastor mentor is being interrupted by a woman representing the city of Jerusalem herself, just like we did this morning in the lament services as which, at which these were run, the, at which these were read. These lines would have been read by a woman, a professional mourner. In that culture, women were the ones who carried the responsibility of shepherding people through their grief. So they were hired for funerals to encourage people to express their grief. And they were hired to express it rather loudly. They set the upper limit for what was acceptable grief to express, which made it possible for those of us who were not comfortable doing that in public to at least feel like, well, I can do this. They were catalysts, as it were, for healthy grieving. Their presence forced a reaction. Uh, in people. And so she interrupts in order to model the congregation's feelings, to give them a, a pattern for what their own expression of the subjective sense of suffering feels like. Even if in the beginning all they can do is just copy her words, eventually her language shapes their own expression of lament in their own words, but it takes five chapters for them to get there. It takes time. Lamentations gives us that time and space and permission to grieve. Even if initially the only way we know how to put our grief into words is by using someone else's words. That's okay. We'll struggle to find our own eventually. And so she interrupts, verse 9, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. And in verse 11, look... Oh, Lord. She'll say that multiple times. Look, Lord, and see, for I am despised. And then she takes over for the rest of the poem, expressing in first-person terms the, the grief 
of the city. She says, look, is it nothing? Is, this, is it nothing, all of you who are walking by and rubbernecking at a destroyed city like we're on a highway looking at an accident? Is it nothing to you? Is this just like a spectacle for you to look at? Do you not see that my sorrow is unlike any sorrow that has ever been brought upon any other person because the Lord has inflicted it on me in the day of his anger? Don't you see Can't you see? For those who are grieving, it often feels as if you're living as the only person who knows that everything has changed, that the world's turned upside down, that nothing will ever be the same as it was before the day you got that news. And no one else seems to know. The rest of the world just moves on at its normal pace, leaving the grieving behind leaving the grieving to wonder if there's anyone else in the history of the world who has ever suffered in the exact same way that they have. And no one has. Every grief is just as individual as the person holding it. And each grief is just as sacred as the soul that is suffering with it. And it's okay to feel that way. It's okay to feel that I am alone in this. No one has ever suffered like this. No one can ever understand what I'm going through. Lamentations gives us the time and the space and the permission to grieve alone. Even to be angry in our grief, angry at the world around us for not recognizing our pain, not giving us culturally appropriate ways of living in our grief for a certain amount of time and space. It's okay to be angry at the rest of the world for wanting us to be back to normal by now, you know, to stop being such a downer in the lunchroom ever since that thing happened. It's okay because Lamentations gives us the time and the space and the permission to grieve in that way, to even say things like, does this mean nothing to you? All of you who are watching expecting me to just be happy again? Do you have any idea what I'm going through? And you heard so well as Julie read the rest of Lady Jerusalem's words and the expression, the feeling, the the depth of grief coming through those words. Because she describes her feelings in ways that anyone who has suffered can resonate with. She feels feverish and trapped and stunned and faint. She feels targeted and attacked and overpowered. She feels crushed, trampled and, and rejected. And no one is there to comfort her. No one is there who even can comfort her. Those who are there can't understand what she's going through and can't seem to figure out a way to empathize with her in a way that shares her grief. And even if they could, how do you transfer the burden of sorrows from your shoulders to someone else's? It's impossible. And so she weeps. Endlessly. Even as she accepts the the pastoral mentor's suggestion that, hey, this tragedy might be a result of Israel's rebellion against God's 
gracious faithfulness. In verse 20, she says, much of her distress, her stomach churning and her heart wrenching anguish, much of her distress is because she knows that part of this is deserved. It's because of Israel's rebelliousness. But okay, granted that, fine, we deserved it, she says, even if we have been rebellious, even if our suffering is destroyed, did we really deserve this? Did it have to be this bad? Really? How does this fit with what we've done? Verse 21, she says, all of my enemies have heard of my trouble and they're glad at what you did to me. Okay, you brought about the day you announced. Now, let them be as I am. They went too far in what they did to us. So let their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all of my transgressions. It is a thread that picks up here in the first poem and runs through all five of them, a thread of grievance. Yes, there's grief that runs all the way through. There's a sense of guilt as well. Some of this is deserved, but there's also this thread of grievance. Really, God, really? Do we deserve this? My groans are are many, and my heart is faint. And thus concludes the service. In the yearly use of these poems and the five readings of these poems, this is the end of it. It doesn't end resolved. It just ends. It just stops. Because you can't rush grief. It's like the the old children's story. You know, you can't go over it. You can't go around it can't go under it, so you have to go through it, which is why Lamentations gives us the time and the space and the permission to grieve, and even in the process gives us the tools that we need to grieve, beginning with that inarticulate cry of anguish, the dirge that expresses our losses with permission to not yet try to figure out how God fits into all of this before eventually, at the right point in time, moving into a lament that helps us begin to orient our sufferings within the broader story of God's gracious and loving faithfulness. But that doesn't happen immediately, right, all at once. Lamentations doesn't force us to get through it quickly so the people around us don't have to feel so weird about us grieving. This isn't a sitcom, right? It doesn't resolve neatly in 23 minutes. This is actual life. And so Lamentations regularly gathers the community together to grieve together because it's okay. It's okay, you know, to be together without having it all together. And that's why we're studying the book of Lamentations during the Lenten season this year because the practice of lament practice that the church in America has largely lost, the practice of lament gives us the room that we need to name our grief, to identify it, to lay it all out before God and to give ourselves over to him in the grieving process, trusting 
that he might just lead us through it. Lamentations by its very existence gives us time and space and permission to grieve. Even if you're emotionally healthy, lamentations makes room in a busy schedule. Even if we're afraid of our grief and afraid that if we let ourselves feel it, we'll drown in it, lamentations promises that there's a way through. Even if we believe that negative emotions are wrong somehow, wrong in general or or just wrong for Christians, the very existence of lamentations and its place in the canon of Scripture forces us to recognize that God makes room in our relationship with him for grief. And even if we're angry at God or convinced he can't exist if he's allowed these sort of things to happen, lamentations invites us to reconsider Reconsider our suffering in God's presence instead of outside of his presence. Lamentations invites us to take the time we need to lament. So when you came in this morning, you took a seat, you probably noticed these cards scattered about, seated next to you. On the top of one side, they say, during Lent, I lament with room here for you to write down your grief and the sorrow you've been carrying. You're welcome to use this card however you would like. If you want to crumple it up and throw it away because the idea of facing the pain that you've been carrying is so strong that you just, you're just still in the inarticulate cry of anguish phase, feel free. If you're in the place where you're like, I don't know how to put into words what I'm lamenting, what I'm feeling, but I can at least say something or copy a, a verse from Lamentations 1, feel free. If you just need to take this card with you and think about it during the week, there'll be another one next week. They'll keep coming, just like sorrows. <laughs> Or if you have processed and begun to process your own laments and your griefs and you're ready to write it down, to put it in writing and see it staring right back at you, then that's what this card is for, to make it permanent. This is just one way to take advantage of the time and the space and the permission to grieve that Lamentations gives us. Because if we take that time, take the space, take the permission, we're slowly going to start to see our suffering inside the story of God's gracious faithfulness in the midst of suffering. That doesn't mean our suffering is going to make sense. I'm not sure that our suffering is ever supposed to really make sense. But we can remember that even while we are suffering, there is still a king, a king who suffered willingly for us, who bled and died and rose again in order to one day put an end to all of the suffering, to take all of our suffering onto himself and somehow redeem it in his own ultimate and infinite suffering and resurrection. And as we wait for that day, that final day, we give our sufferings and we give our sorrows and we give our pain over to God and ask him, can you somehow use this for your glory? Right now, God, this is all I have. Can you use it? And Lamentations tells us, yeah.
if we take the time, the space, the permission to really grieve. So let's pray. Father, when we come to you, we often come to you with hands outstretched, our palms open because we are hoping to receive from you some, uh, some blessing, the, the, all the spiritual blessings that are laid up for us in Christ. Well, today we come to you, we're seated here with our hands out and our palms up because of what we are carrying and that we're asking you to take. We submit, Father, these griefs that we carry into your lordship and into your providential care and ask that you do something with them. Even if all it is is just to carry us through them, would you take our offering of grief and use it for your glory? We pray in the name of the one who suffered for us. Amen. Amen.